Hi, this is Menle Golakai Agri. And this is Lauren Yoshiko, and you're listening to Broccoli Talk, a podcast for cannabis lovers. Today's episode is the second in a four-part series made in partnership with Superette, a recreational cannabis retailer and brand from Toronto. Broccoli Magazine readers may remember learning about them in issue eight, and basically Superette is making buying cannabis as enjoyable as consuming it. If you haven't seen photos of their shops in Canada, check it out because we love the weed bodega meets retro supermarket vibes. This sponsored series will drop two episodes at a time in October and November, and we'll be chatting about the ways that cannabis intersects with personal relationships, career paths, brands and retail design, and social justice issues. So we want to give a huge shout out to Superette for supporting Broccoli Talk, and we encourage everyone to check out your neighborhood high variety shop at superetteshop.com and on Instagram at superette underscore shop. So on today's episode, I'm talking with Akwasi Owusu-Bempa, the Director of Research at the Campaign for Cannabis Amnesty, a Canadian organization focused on creating a more equitable cannabis industry. Canada is three years into their federal legalization, but there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of doing right by the Black and Indigenous communities who've been harmed by cannabis prohibition. It's, it's kind of insane talking with him about how little has been talked about until now, even when cannabis was getting legalized to address the people literally serving time still for cannabis charges. Um, and Akwasi is also an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Toronto. And his background in criminology means that he has a really deep understanding of how cannabis intersects with systems of oppression. And he's very good about talking about it uh, in a way that laymen understand. Yeah, that will be a very interesting episode to hear. I think, you know, a lot of us, myself included, have are oftentimes, I think, naive when we think about the relationship that Canada has to its deep-seated racism issues. I think it's easy to, to think that because Canadians are such decent people by and large, that there isn't conflict and that there isn't, you know, I guess a, a, a system of oppression when it comes to Black and Brown and especially Indigenous people. I think it's just really valuable to dive into that, you know, as as a continent, North America, the Americas, how we all perceive um, our issues with race and cannabis and, and how that intersects and how it plays out with legalization. So I'm excited. Yeah, exactly. I was kind of like embarrassed at how much I learned and how little I knew about some of these aspects of Canadian cannabis culture. So you ready to tune in? Let's get it. My name is Akwasi Owusu-Bempa. I'm the director of research at uh, the Campaign for Cannabis Amnesty. I'm also an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Toronto and an affiliate scientist with Canada's Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. Thank you so much for coming on today. Will you tell me a little bit more about your role at the Campaign for Cannabis Amnesty? My primary role is doing or gathering research that would forward our mandate or our agenda. So our main aim is to help people who have criminal records for cannabis-related crimes that are no longer illegal now that we have legalization here in Canada, have those records cleared, as well as you know, advance what we call cannabis justice, period. And so my role in terms of the director of research involves getting a hold of data, cannabis arrest data from police services, for example, across the country that are not readily available here 
and uh, helping to make those public and, and getting them in the hands of policymakers that will ultimately advance our agenda. Just to really define that notion of amnesty, we're talking about a sort of two prongs of both restoring, doing some restorative justice to the past prohibition of cannabis and the people who suffered most during that, and as well as dealing with current legislation. Is that right? Yeah. So I guess, you know, for uh, American listeners, especially uh, here in Canada, as we move towards legalization, there was almost no discussion about anything with respect to making cannabis legalization work for the people who'd been harmed by drug prohibition. So we came on the scene largely initially to try and pressure the the federal government here in Canada to first of all, clear those criminal records of people who'd been convicted of crimes that would no longer be illegal under legalization. And then as we moved through that process and we got, I don't want to say completely past that process because from where we come from or our perspective, we got a half measure, uh, but also trying to advance other forms of uh, equity. So inclusion in the legal market, as well as ultimately, we'd like to see, you know, a redistribution of some of the profits from and tax revenue generated from legal sales back into those communities that were most harmed by prohibition. I am curious how a sociology professor ended up working so hard on these campaigns in regards to cannabis. That's a great question. So I'm actually trained as a criminologist and I, even in my department, my line is a criminology oh. line. Yeah. So like I teach the introduction to criminology and criminal justice course. Uh, I teach a graduate pleasing course. And importantly, I teach uh, inequality and criminal justice. So my main academic focus is inequality in the criminal justice system. So it does it does make sense. So yeah, exactly. So the things, you know, the, the, the social factors that cause those inequalities and the way in which the justice system also furthers inequalities. And you can't study inequality in criminal justice without looking at drug laws. And as cannabis is, you know, the most widely used illegal drug where it's illegal or where it was illegal, you have to focus on cannabis as well, right? Like well over half of possession offenses uh, and and much more in most jurisdictions. Drug possession offenses would be for cannabis. So Canada's got quite a uh, rich cannabis culture, not only on the West Coast in Vancouver and British Columbia, but across the country. And so, you know, even before legalization, cannabis was kind of omnipresent here. And I could see a very kind of stark difference between the way in which People around me, for example, when I was a student at university, or even as I, I got older and I was working, you know, people in professional positions, their relationship with the plant and the drug versus the people in many of the areas that I was researching that happened to be more disadvantaged areas. As we were moving towards legalization, I remember one of my friends saying to me, isn't it uh, legal already? And he lived in a very, you know, privileged part of town. I was like, well, yes, yeah, legal for you, but not for many other folks. So uh, it, it's been, I don't want to say just like a natural extension of my work because it's been a focus of my work for a very long time. We have listeners all over the world, but can you talk to us a little bit about how you see the U.S.'s cannabis culture and cannabis conversation right now heavily around social equity compares to what's happening and how it's been like in Canada the last couple of years? You know, I think there are many drivers for legalization on both sides of the border. Uh, in the in Canada, our drivers for legalization were really twofold. One, there was a business interest. Like we've had legal medical cannabis now for a couple of decades. And in the last, let's call it six or seven years, it moved from a either grow yourself or or designate someone to grow for you medicinally to actually a 
industrial kind of medicinal program. So a, a few companies got licenses to produce medicinal cannabis on an industrial scale. And I think in some ways that kind of set the stage for legalization because there was already, you know, an industry there, but it was also like heavily political. Our current prime minister, Justin Trudeau, campaigned on a promise to legalize cannabis once he was elected. And, you know, Canadian youth, Canadian young people uh, use cannabis or used cannabis at, at some of the highest rates in the Western world. The general public was quite supportive of cannabis legalization and, and have quite liberal views. Not everyone, of course, but quite liberal views towards the drug. One of the key differences in, in what I see in the American situation is, you know, I think those factors are there as well. People use legalization to uh, further their political ends. There's most definitely the business interests. But one of the key factors that we see south of the border that we don't have here is you've got mass incarceration that is just so evident to so many people, right? That mass incarceration is also so racialized. You've also had a very much more public war on crime and war on drugs. And so I think many people see and, and many more are recognizing and that their eyes are being open to just how much devastation the war on drugs and the war on cannabis has caused to primarily minority communities. And so I think a key driver in the United States that we didn't have here towards legalization is trying to reduce and ultimately repair some of those harms of drug prohibition on those communities. We don't have, like you guys, uh, racially disaggregated criminal justice data, meaning that like, I can't just go to a federal government website or to a local police agency or a provincial, we don't have states, we have provinces, to a provincial police or justice agency and take a look and, and see like, differences in uh, arrest rates or conviction rates or incarceration for any type of crime by race, right? Let alone for drugs. So for many people, uh, including policymakers and politicians, like they were just unaware of or, or less aware or knew that the public wasn't aware of the racial disparities and how our drug uh, law enforcement and prohibition had unfolded. And so they didn't need to use that as a key driver as some you know, are south of the border. Wow. When do you think that racial disparity started getting talked about on the national stage? Uh, largely thanks to uh, a, a reporter who I've worked with a lot. His name's Jim Rankin. He's at the Toronto Star. Uh, in 2017, he published a special series in the Toronto Star newspaper where he analyzed or he'd analyzed the data and published it in the in the special series based on cannabis arrest data from the city of Toronto from 2003 to 13 that showed, for example, although black Torontonians made up about 8% of the population, they were 25% of uh, arrestees for minor cannabis possession, right? So overrepresented by like three times. It's actually um, greater than some American jurisdictions. If you look at New York, well, I'm looking at, I'm thinking about the stop data too, but most definitely like, you know, and the disparities differ across the country. So, so that was 2017 and he'd, he'd got some similar data in the early 2000s. And so I kind of prompted him. I, I saw that this um, medical regime coming into, pl into place, I had a feeling that legalization was going to follow. And so kind of encouraged him to get a hold of that data. He analyzed it. I, I helped him kind of think through that. And then a year later, uh, a woman by the name of Rachel Brown, who was then at Vice News, published based on, and, and it's got to be clear that, you know, the police didn't just hand over this data. Uh, the journalists had to file freedom of information requests to get access to it. But Rachel Brown got similar data from five cities across the country. There were several more, but the data wasn't good from some of them. So literally from coast to coast, from Vancouver through uh, Winnipeg, Ottawa to Halifax, she was able to uh, take a look and see how both our Black populations and our Indigenous populations 
systems fared with respect to these cannabis arrests. And we saw with the exception of like one city for both indigenous and for black people, blacks and indigenous were overrepresented in those cannabis arrests across the country. For the most part, white people were underrepresented with the exception of just a, a couple of cities, even though some of my own research has shown that there's relatively little difference as is the case in the United States, relatively little difference in uh, rates of use amongst or between those racial groups, right? So those disparities aren't explained by differences in use. It's exciting to hear that these journalists are showing not only that this information, what the information is, but they're showing how hard it is to get it. And that's a problem, too. That's that's insane that you have to be able to file that paperwork to be able to learn that knowledge. I mean, that's a huge barrier. You know, like the troubling thing for us was Justin Trudeau announced that he would, you know, legalize cannabis if he was elected and then he was elected. And then, of course, there was a rush to legalize because he wanted a political win. And so I think in the in the haste in which they legalize cannabis, you know, the racial disparities and arrests and, and the consequences and the damage done by prohibition was really like it was unacknowledged and it was pushed aside. There were some uh, like the, the federal government, of course, had consultations and like I, I raised the issue in, in a constant like in a, a written submission and i know our indigenous populations as well certain indigenous communities raise the issue but for the most part the harms of prohibition and the harms of the war on cannabis that are, were inflicted on black and indigenous people did not feature at all in mainstream discussions around legalization i'm curious because of your experience with students before and after legalization how you see the youth are are talking about cannabis maybe differently or the different kinds of things coming up in conversations about cannabis yeah i haven't noticed a huge difference yet in the way that my students talk about cannabis uh, like one of the things that we're seeing generally is that like rates of drug use are kind of declining, right? But that's a, that's a societal feature. And I think that was happening before uh, even legalization. Like young people commit less crime, they do less drugs and they're having less sex, right? Like that's just happening. <laughs> right. Um, I, I raise cannabis a lot in my class uh, for a number, like in my classes for a number of reasons. Like one, given the work that I do, like I like when I'm teaching to be able to refer to things that are happening in real life. Uh, and also to refer to work that I'm doing so that I can walk students through, you know, the policymaking process or, or advocacy or, or laws. One of the key things that I like to do is, you know, when I'm talking about crime, what crime is and what criminals are, like use cannabis as, as an example of how crimes are socially constructed and criminals are socially constructed. And, and there are people now in, in our society who are labeled criminals for doing something that you could freely do today, right? So I think that cannabis for me in the classroom is a, is a great learning tool. And it is still, as I'd said, before, you know, Canadian youth had been using at some of the highest rates in the Western world. And so it's also something that they can relate to. Like there's another thing that I do at the beginning of my intro uh, criminal justice classes, I get the students anonymously to write down all the crimes they've ever committed so I can read them back. And again, kind of like nor normalize, <laughs> well, it normalizes criminal behavior, right? Like when we think of criminals, we often think of psychopaths and sociopaths that we see on TV when like most crime is committed by people probably that look much more like you and I than those people that we see on TV. And one of, of course, the things that used to come up a lot was was cannabis use and, and some sales, uh, the sales coming up now and, and uh, use being 
for most of them anyway, because they're for the most part over 18 where we are, uh, is no longer illegal. Is that an issue? I am really curious about how the age changes from province to province. Is there Are there kids like driving across the border to get weed? I don't think they're driving across the border to get weed because like... They always got it before. That's true. Well, yeah. And they like there are a lot of people and I would imagine, young, well, young people especially who are just getting it from the same places that they got it before legalization and not even going to like you, you kind of... So we got a couple of things going on. Uh, we've got three different minimum ages across the provinces. So Quebec has the oldest minimum age. It's 21. Uh, there are several provinces that it's 19 or a couple of provinces that 19 and then uh, many that are 18 like Ontario. But because of the way in which like each province got to roll out legalization in terms of like sales and, and distribution in their own way. And so some places have store, you know, there are storefronts, some are government owned storefronts, some are, are private, right? And so it all depends on where you are. But my point being that those storefronts aren't evenly distributed or like geographically. Uh, certainly not in our more remote areas. So one of the other things that I look at, you know, when we're talking about, because one of the key things that I'm, I'm, I'm interested in is kind of like justice and fairness here, of course, right, is especially now our more marginalized neighborhoods don't have the same number of cannabis retail outlets that our more uh, wealthy and privileged neighborhoods do, at least at the moment anyway. So that makes it harder that you can get it by buying online, but you need a credit card, of course, which means you have to be banked and you have to have access to a credit card or go to a storefront. And so for people in our more marginalized neighborhoods that don't necessarily have a credit card, or many people are very suspect about what they call government weed, right? So they don't want to be using a credit card online to purchase cannabis. And there've already been some security breaches. So you know, there's justification in that. They, they're more likely to, uh, and we, we definitely saw this immediately after and, and in the period since, still to buy from the illegal market. You know, thank you for answering my curiosity about Canada. I mean, that kind of just helps fill in the picture. But getting back to this sort of playing catch up on the justice needed and the ingested still needed to be addressed. I'm curious if the lawmakers are paying more attention or what we can do to get lawmakers to pay more attention and value this sort of open access to the information that tells us how we can be better. I do think it's being talked about more. So we did have, as I said, the campaign for cannabis amnesty came around because we wanted the federal government to clear the criminal records of people who'd been convicted of crimes that would no longer be illegal. We got a half measure. We got record suspensions. So basically individuals' records are sealed and it's only for people who have like a, a cannabis possession offense. They can't have other offenses, but there's an expedited process that they can go through to get those seals, but they're not like fully expunged like they are in other jurisdictions. And unlike, you know, California and now Illinois, where Code for America is helping governments do this automatically, you still have to go through the bureaucratic process of applying for this. So we consider that a half measure. And we're still moving towards that. Recently, we've been pressuring the federal government a little bit to include a racial analysis in its review of cannabis legalization, the, the Cannabis Act, which is our, our federal uh, law that, that allows for legal cannabis is up for review three years after legalization. And so we want them to do that. And so there has been some acknowledgement. Uh, British Columbia just entered into an agreement with an indigenous community to like allow for sales through that community in a very kind of unique and, and novel way. Uh, but at the moment, to be honest, actually, it's been industry uh, in many ways that has really been the driving force behind many of the positive things that we've seen in this respect. So from inclusion to, 
you know, using their CSR money to reinvest in, or at least, you know, provide opportunities for individuals. So there's still a lot of work, I think, that can be done to, to pressure uh, governments. And of course, Twitter's one way, but, uh, you know, I, I'd recommend Canadians, like literally writing to either emailing or, or a hard copy letter to your members of parliament, your members of provincial parliament to get this on the radar, because uh, it's important. And, and again, kind of recognizing and, and giving thanks to the industry partners who have who've done a lot. Uh, you know, we've worked with a number at the campaign, a number of licensed producers and other industry players who've actually, you know, kind of lent us their government relations teams to help us navigate the kind of advocacy side of this. And, and that's been great. That's really cool. The headlines when I look at news in Canada is always about like huge producers that are on the Canadian trade exchange um, and like massive corporate entities. Is there extra pressure on them to participate in those equity efforts, do you think? I think there's pressure in as much as they understand that in many ways it's good business, right? So, you know, just like we know that diversity and hiring is good business practice, I think especially young people, especially millennials, want to align themselves with businesses and corporations that share their values and, and their interests and, and their views of society, right? And so like it's my belief anyway that many of these companies recognize that fact. We're just about to, we'll, we'll launch some uh, data uh, very soon kind of giving a breakdown race and gender of leaders in the industry. And as you might guess, this is the case in the United States. It, it's it's largely male and it's largely white. That should be of no surprise, right? So it's not that the individuals who are in the industry have necessarily been harmed by what we've seen, but I think there is a recognition. And, you know, I, I've got to say, even here in the province of Ontario, our, our major distributor being the provincial government, I know is also uh, looking at these issues and taking these issues seriously as well. So we've got government attention to this. We've got corporate attention to this. I think the more that consumers do as well to align themselves with those brands is a positive thing as well. So for smaller producers that don't have legal teams or hundreds of thousands of dollars to contribute to the efforts, um, what can they do? What can they do to support equity in Canada? I think first and foremost is on the hiring side of things and, and on you know where your supply for whatever it is that you, you might need, whether a retailer and where you're getting your product from, or if you're in an ancillary business, who you're sourcing those supplies from are key, who you choose, for example, to be your, your marketing team and all of these different types of things. So I, I think, and again, just given the moment that we're at right now, uh, seeing another kind of racial and, and social justice awakening. I think a lot of companies are paying attention to these issues, both large and small. And uh, it's nice to see from what I've seen so far, some of these smaller companies doing doing just that. And then to take it one more step further, would you give the same kind of advice to consumers just shopping thoughtfully? Where we decide to spend our money and, and who we support says a lot. And, and if we support, as I've said, businesses and companies, corporations that share our social values and, and that are doing good things, then uh, ultimately, you know, we hope that we'll see them succeed. And there was a, a rush into this industry, both on the part of people that were trying to establish businesses and the banking side and, and marketing and lobbying and all of these different things. And of course, there are going to be a, a lot of failures in this industry, right? Like many of the companies that existed a couple of years ago are, are struggling today, and many of them won't be here five years from now. And so I, I truly believe that those that are able to demonstrate these values and, and to get people on board will be successful and shoppers should vote with their wallets. 100%. I understand that there is a town hall event that the Campaign for Cannabis Amnesty is doing on the 15th. Can you talk about that to us? So October 15th at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, we're having our 
Cannabis Amnesty Town Hall on Racial Justice. This is uh, largely an industry event, but open to the public as well, of course. Uh, we got a great lineup of speakers. Jabari Paul, uh, U.S. Activism Manager for Ben & Jerry's, will be our keynote. We've got Anthony Morgan, who's from the City of Toronto's Confronting Anti-Black Racism Unit. We've also got Miss D, Hillary Black from Canopy, of course. Uh, myself, the Director of Research at Cannabis Amnesty, and Anna Maria Anenajor, the Campaign Director, will be the host of the event. So uh, once again, that's October 15th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Uh, information about the Town Hall can be found on our website, CannabisAmnesty.ca. Again, that's CannabisAmnesty.ca. Thank you so much. I definitely feel like we have got a great start for people wanting to get more involved and understand some of the nuance to these efforts in Canada. Thank you very much, uh, Lauren. It's been an absolute pleasure. As I said, I look south of the border for a lot of inspiration. I know things are not perfect there, but the equity models in a number of different American states provide a framework for what we can be doing here. So it's, it's my pleasure to be chatting. This episode was produced by Anya Charbonneau. Our music is by Giselle Garcia, and our logo design is by Jennifer Wright. Visit Broccoli Online at BroccoliMag.com and on Instagram at Broccoli underscore Mag. If you're into the show, don't hesitate to rate and review.